Welcome to Sacred Realms, a podcast where two rabbis discuss science fiction and fantasy through a Jewish lens. This month's episode is Just My Type, Type Scenes in Tanakh, Sci-Fi, and Fantasy. I'm Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone, here again with my amazing colleague, Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock. Great to be here with you again. You too. So for our 11th episode, we're going to answer the ubiquitous question of the month, talk about what we have been watching and or reading since our last episode, and then turn to our main topic, just my type, type scenes in the Tanakh, sci-fi and fantasy. And then for our final segment from the Geniza, we will be dusting off some of our favorites from the past. So you ready for the Shayla, Lindsay? I'm ready. All right, here it is. So question of the month is, when have you felt like you are playing out a type scene in your life. So when have you had one of those biblical moments? Biblical pop up, moments. Like, wow. Replaying that scene from the Torah. It was obviously the time when my family was told to build a boat and put a bunch of animals in it. No, just kidding. That would have been dramatic. It did not happen. I was relating to the story of Parshat Lech Lecha and Avram being instructed by God to leave everything that he knows, his family, his home, his birthplace, to go to a place that God is going to show him. Now, I did not have direct instructions from God like that, but I have experienced it a number of times in my life, the sort of powerful feeling of wanting feeling moved to step away from or depart from the things that were familiar to me and go either literally elsewhere or metaphorically elsewhere to explore and not entirely knowing what that would be or or what i would find there so in a very like literal kind of way my experience is first leaving texas to go to college i knew i wanted to go out of state I ended up going to California, Southern California, Scripps College, which, you know, I had the direction of knowing I wanted to go. I was going to a college campus there. I, I knew that that was where I was headed. But having this general sense of not really knowing what that would hold, but just knowing that it would be something quite different from what I had experienced before. And similar to that, I think leaving once I graduated from from college, then going to move to New York, where I was in a master's degree program at NYU, without having spent any significant amount of time in New York and having really no idea at all what it was going to be like, and kind of having to navigate an entirely new situation, that really was quite transformative in a lot of important ways. So that was what I was connecting with this question. What about you? Type scenes. Similar scene. It's very much like my Lech Lecha period of life. Grew up in, uh, I know I've mentioned in the past, like a, like a secular slash reform upbringing. And not that my father is an idle salesperson. He was in sales, but not idols. For my dad, a very secular yeah. Jewish person, involved in the community, but not in religious ways, and very social and other helpful ways. So 
definitely not going to college for me. It's interesting. I was hearing like the different stories that was kind of like still like within my home zone, like two hours away, you know, from moved from LA to San Diego for four years, six years total to post-college. That was not my Lech Lecha moment. It was really that move to New York City when I began JTS. That was the leaving behind California, not going back to the Midwest, and just going into a very different, number one, different city setting, New York City. I visited the previous February, like around this time of year, actually, when it was miserable and cold. If I like New York City in February, I'll like it any time of year. And moved to New York to brand new city, brand new institution with its own culture, and a brand new kind of religious life that I had been moving towards, but never fully inhabiting. And that was like my big lech lecha moment. And then I never really went back home after that. I mean, I, I visited. There was always a visit, never a living. Always that temporary residency with like, you know, parents during summer when I would go. We went to Campermaw, California for a couple summers. We'd like visit, but we, I never lived back with family. For those of you listening, you can drop us an email with your answer to this month's question. When have you felt like you have played out a type scene in your life? You can email us at sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com. So, Lindsay, what have you been watching and or reading lately? Okay, so I think the last time we got together, I forgot that I had actually watched the movie, the Disney movie Wish. And because I think you you mentioned how you had not seen it, but I, in fact, did see it because that was their centennial film. Yeah, yeah. So I, I did see it. I went with my kids. It's a good winter break activity to do together and you know definitely had like a lot of references in there to other disney movies my overall take was like it's always good to have another you know animated disney movie to add to the to the genre i i felt like it was too generic uh-huh. i feel like you know the the beauty and the excitement i think in a lot of the storytelling that we find in disney movies pixar really anything is like comes in the specificity and this was like it had a storyline but it was like everyone came to this place that this king brought together in order to be a home for everyone and it's going to be kumbaya and of course and it like seemed like too straightforward and simple in that way and then very quickly you realize the the good king who is here protecting everyone is in fact nefarious shocking shocking he's holding on to everyone's wishes in order to manipulate them and keep them kind of in line because you know once a year or once periodically someone's wish gets selected to be granted but of course he's the one who decides which wishes are less threatening to the social structure and can be so sorry everyone spoiler alert should have said that up front but at this point you know it's been movie's been out for a while yeah and so you know i feel like yeah you know you have like the crew of the young people who are going to save the day and band together and you know they try to have a racially diverse cast but it sort of felt formulaic to me and lacking in you know and it's a like perfectly fine way to spend an hour and a half with your young children but i feel like it doesn't it's not going to stand out for me in the way that a lot of other 
Disney creations do because they're very rooted in a particular world that gets constructed that has like its own set of rules, its own logic, its own like mythology in a way that this one kind of didn't. Couple questions. One, I was thinking as you were describing its gen genericness, like, is it a parable? Like, is, is it of the genre of the parable? Because it made me think about like certain Hasidic stories about the king and the people, very vague, but mm -hmm. like things clearly homiletical or allegorical meaning. Like, does it have that? The other thing I was thinking about is you mentioned these young people fighting against the king. So there's a, a role-playing game called Misspent Youth. And it, it actually is, to our point of our theme, it is young people fighting an authority. Like, that's the type. That's, mm -hmm. that's the generic type scene that they mm -hmm. want you to role-play. And you can pick any setting you want. The two settings that they use as examples in the book are Star Wars, basically, you know, a bunch of young rebels fighting the Empire, and... Avatar The Last Airbender, a bunch of young teens taking down the Fire Lord. So it made me think of like, oh, it's that genre. It is, it is, you know, the band of youth taking down the king. It's misspent youth. There's a type scene that I hear in your description, but is it a parable? Just I throw that out there for a discussion. I mean, I I just I don't think it is veiled enough to even be a parable it's just very straightforward it's like oh that that uh, got you know, very very quickly you figure out okay this guy this is all so bad isn't it and he and all the main characters are human and they're not culturally specific you think about any other disney movie and there's like the little mermaid I'm like okay you're in an undersea world there are mermaids fish are talking like there's a lot going on. It's creating its own setting, rules, etc. Lion King. You're on the Lion Savannah. King. Very very circumscribed world. Clear cast of characters. Right. Yeah. Or I'm thinking about even, you know, more recent ones like Encanto. Okay. It's like you Fantastic. have a very specific cultural context and within mm -hmm. it, a very specific family that has its own mythology. They are all magical. They all have different powers. And there you learn so in the opening song about this. It gets created and drawn out in this very particular way where you're like, I'm invested. And I have been immersed in this world in, in a way that like is entirely the creation of the people who created this show. Whereas it's like, I feel like I'm not able to like fully articulate what it is about it, but it just feels generic. It, it doesn't feel particularly creative. Like the songs also, nothing stands out among the songs. Whereas that is often a feature. Of, so no like, risk. Or nothing risk. risk. Yeah. Or like, what was the one that we were talking about where they have like the different elements? Elemental. Loved it. Right. Like, like oh how God. creative is that, right? Like you had to come, like somebody came, created these an anthropomorphized elements and they all have different cultures and you're brought into that world. Mm -hmm. This is what the fire people do. This is what's going on with the water people. This is who they are. This is, you know, what's distinctive about them. Like that's not present in, in Wish. 
I also watched the new Trolls movie, Trolls Band Together. I've heard good things. Um, yeah, so my daughter, the five-year-old, has enjoyed the previous installments in the Trolls movie franchise, and I like them as well. I felt like they did, you know, creative job with you know being able to use pre-existing music and repurpose it this one took it to a whole other level like the animation was good the characters were great were fun the villains were kind of creative like the whole method by which the villains were going to do their villainy was something that was sort of original they take you through this whole journey as the the trolls go about trying to rescue one of the siblings this movie has everything for everyone in the entire family okay <laughs> if you grew up with boy bands this is very much to a certain demographic right like parents my age who grew up with boy bands being popular and now have children and you go to this movie and justin timberlake voices one of the main characters and then you find out spoiler here it is that he, in fact, was in a boy band as a child with his older siblings. And then the bro band broke up. The siblings have become estranged from each other. But one of them has been captured. And the band gets back together? To get back together in order to save their brother. But then it also, the musicality is an important part of what actually is going to save the day. So there's plenty of opportunities for singing, of course. And right, so there's family reunions, there's lots of jokes, references to various boy bands of the 90s and early 2000s, which is great. You know, they talk about getting in sync. There's like references, Backstreet Boys, you know, new kids on the block, like everybody gets like a shout out in the form of a joke. So it's there for the parents and other people who, who are watching this animation is really well done there's like different you know as they're going on their travels to get to the villains you see and encounter different places different entities there are trolls there are bergens there's all of these other kinds of beings that populate different places and definitely some like really heavy psychedelic influence happening in, in parts of this too which is really interesting i really enjoyed it i've kind of like loosely watched some of the other trolls movies when we've watched them at home i felt like this one was the best most creative compelling storyline what i find amazing from afar is it is i think the best pencil topper movie adaptation i've ever seen <laughs> But did they start as pencil toppers? Because they were just like so. the troll dolls. There were like troll these, dolls. I think the dolls came later. I, I remember you would like take to put it on, on your pencil. You would right. move your pencil and make the hair go crazy. And that was kind of the fun part. It's and really amazing how they've extended this franchise. It really is like yes. they've truly like created a whole world around a pencil topper, an inexpensive plastic pencil topper toy into yeah. a multi a multi-million dollar film franchise. That is right. Fun. That is but good. They actually that did it in a way that is like actually interesting and compelling i think That's cool That's at least cool. in this movie so i love it and i've actually also because i was like i need to get it together and do something genre related i decided to break out a comic book that i had for a bit but hadn't gotten into yet which is a series paper girls which is 
written by Brian K. Vaughn and the artist is Cliff Chang. I have the entire collected series. Ah. When they publish them all together in these bigger volumes, they are quite large. And anyway, so it's similar in some ways to Stranger Things. Mm, okay. Very similar, actually. Probably started before Stranger Things or just was on a separate track. Except that the main, the cast of young people here are girls who are paper delivery girls. That, that's the name. Oh, okay. They the set beginning in 1988. They are girls who are delivering newspapers on bike. and they begin encountering on one of one evening or early morning on their delivery route, strange happenings in their town. And we are in the midst of discovering what exactly is going on. There seem to be visitors from either another planet and or perhaps the future technology that may appear to be magical i don't really know exactly how to categorize the genre at this point but it's kind of thriller maybe it's like sci-fi kind of thing going on here yeah there's definitely some time travel happening it seems that the the young cast has been transported to the future and one of the characters is encountering her future self. Are they on bikes? Of course they're on bikes. It's okay. the 1980s and they're oh. for delivery girls. So to kind of to bring in like our theme of the episode, type scenes, there's another role-playing game that riffs off of this genre of TV series film. You mentioned Stranger Things, E.T. and yeah. others. And the, the RPG is called Kids on Bikes. Oh, great. <laughs> because, so this fits they, right in there. Yeah, yeah, so there is an archetypal story of kids on bikes often in a small town do they ever leave town we'll find out i'm okay. not so I'm not, so it, it, it certainly seems like is it's like, mostly i mean they're going back and forth to the future so right. maybe they do leave town we'll find right. out so like you know kids on bikes so et stand by me explorers a bunch of kids riding around town encountering Goonies. the strange and mysterious do the Goonies ride on bikes? Goonies is exactly kids on bikes. Exactly. Yes. yes, exactly. It is that is a a wonderful, delightful type scene that I grew up with and I delight in all the time. So I'm excited to see how this story unfolds. And so what I, about you? My brother Scott recommended that I watch Outer Range, which is on HBO Max, I think. There's one season, they're making a second season. It is set in Wyoming, I believe today in our time period and and the land of this one ranch played by josh brolin from the goonies he's the older brother so there's this huge hole perfectly circular with sort of like swirling dirt it's like this big void on his property we have no idea what it is but there it is and i won't say much more about it the void in his property is the big mystery what is it? Where does it lead to? What's going on? It's a time travel show. It's very good. It's sort of like dark, but set in Wyoming. And with a little more straightforward time travel. And I, I did see a type scene in it, which is what inspired the theme. There is another rancher who is older, infirmed, has two sons. One loves to hunt. 
one's more indoorsy and he loves the one who is more the hunter but the one who's more indoors thinks that he could take over the ranch and it feels like isaac jacob and asaf all over again so definitely a type scene i recommend it it was very well done and i think josh brolin is fantastic they're all good actors i watched for all mankind season four i've heard there will be seven seasons total which is very exciting because at some point it becomes a prequel to either star trek or the expanse one of those two, unclear. Not an actual, but like an as-if prequel. Because at some point, will they actually create faster-than-light travel? That's to be seen. Mm. Or will, will it become Firefly? No idea. Hmm. But it is, it is interesting. It's interesting. It's very good. I've noticed that they have zero discussion of faith or God or religion in the show. It's wow. very politically human drama-oriented. But I am curious at some point, you know, how that would play out. What would Jewish life look like in orbit, on the moon, mm. on Mars, or any faith? How would it stretch or adapt once we leave the confines of Earth? So, mm. general question, kind of cool to maybe think about it and how that might play out. I watched Monarchy Legacy of Monsters, Monsters on um, Apple Plus. It's now finished its first season. One thing they act, there's a place sort of like in between our realm and the monsters realm which someone calls the Axis Mundi, which means the, the world mm -hmm. axis. And I did think about it because one character who goes in there ages very, very slowly and reemerges decades later. And I thought of Choni Hama Agal, yeah. the very well-known rabbi who sees a man planting a carob tree and says, that will not bear fruit for 70 years. He says, I know it's for my grandchildren. And then Honey goes to sleep, wakes up 70 years later and meets that man's great grandson. And the tree is then fully grown. Right. So I thought about what would it like to leave one's timeline to reemerge decades later? And how would that shake up your world? That would be an interesting, that's like, that's like one of our classic Jewish time travel questions or more like a mm -hmm. Van Winkle story. Yeah. 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 I watched Bodies on Netflix, which was based on a DC graphic novel. It's a murder mystery. The same body appears in the exact same condition in 1890, 1941, 2023, and 2053. So mm. clearly time travel. There is a Jewish tie-in. There's a detective at each time period investigating the murder. And each detective has some kind of a vulnerability that in that time period makes them a little susceptible to suspicion. So mm. 1890s, the detective is gay. And in that time period in London, it's very dangerous and he will be arrested and killed. In the 1941, he is Jewish and living in London and is right before the bombing of London. Mm. And he is trying to basically change his name to, to blend in more. But people know he's Jewish. They keep basically rubbing it in and suggesting that he's not trustworthy. The one in our time period is a Muslim woman. It doesn't really make her vulnerable. She does get assigned to a certain like controlled task, but it doesn't really seem to be against her. And then in the future, played by Shira Haas of 
Stiesel fame. She plays a detective who is unable to walk, but has an implant from this company that runs everything. Mm -hmm. And apparently being disabled is very looked down upon in the future. And so she basically sells her soul to the company to be able to walk. Really good, really well written, probably done, well worth it. Um, okay, so this is, this is on Netflix. Okay. That's on Netflix. Um, so to our main topic, just my type. Type scenes in the Tanakh, sci-fi, and fantasy. I'm sure, Lindsay, when you were a JTS, you had this idea presented, if you hadn't heard it before, of the biblical type scene. Did you? Yeah, maybe not in exactly those terms. We certainly see a number of different stories that seem to repeat themselves, even within the context of the biblical narrative. Yeah over and over again or get played with or modified or adapted and certainly those stories are have continued to be influential both and, in the and, jewish community and beyond yeah and that's exactly what they are they're scenes that recur again and again and it's the little variations that mm -hmm. make them so interesting I, I have a favorite which is meeting your wife at the well meeting your wife at a well occurs several times and this is, I think, a good example because it kind of shows you how the differences tell you about the people involved. So the first one I can think of is, well, I'll skip the first one. The second one is Jacob meeting Rachel at the well when he leaves mm -hmm. home in Haran. And he sees Rachel, loves her so much on first sight, he actually moves a huge boulder off of the cover of a well. So th th this story is about this remarkable romantic love like it is just for the ages that's the core of their story the next one is moses meeting his wife Zipporah at a well he's chasing away brigands and so here aha clearly he is the one who will save the people in the future and that's why he meets Zipporah at the well um the next one the first one is actually isaac meeting rebecca at the well but he doesn't because mm -hmm. Isaac is so passive, it's only his dad's servant who meets mm -hmm. her at the well. He is absent from his own well scene. That's Isaac, right? And then mm -hmm. just like absent from his own life. And the fourth one is actually an aborted type scene. It's King Saul. Saul, as a young man. He's, his father's donkey has gone loose. He's chasing it. He goes to a well, sees a young woman. And you think, oh, he's going to meet the future queen of Israel. Nope. He says, have you seen the prophet Samuel? She says, yeah, he's over there. And he goes, thank you. And he kind of goes along. And you realize that his future lies with Samuel. So each of those is a man goes to a well and meets his future. And all the differences are what you're supposed to notice in the type scene. Because the, the type scene's regular features, you filter out. And, and the differences pop out as, ooh, that's what's going on here. So all the little variations just point out where the story is headed next. Have you right. watched the show, Lindsay, Phineas, and Ferb, perchance? No, I have not. The show has a very strict formula. It, it, so it, it, it is a type scene every single episode. There's a strict structure. And it's all the little variations that make it funny. Like, they will always figure out what they're going to do that day of summer, and then that changes they will always say, where's Perry, their pet platypus, who is a super spy. And he will always engage with their nemesis, Dr. Doofenshmirtz, and their battle will inevitably 
take down whatever they did that day during summer. And then Candace, their sister, cannot bust them for doing whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So there's a very strict formula. And it's always the differences that make the show hysterically funny. So that's a, a modern type scene that they use over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, or the musical, you know, spam a lot? Yeah. The song that goes like this. So there's a song that goes like that. And mm -hmm. it says like in every musical, there's one song, usually the end of act one, it's a duet. And the lyrics of the song, they play with like the form of this cliche song. And most musicals have one. And it's mm. uh, another example where you, they kind of like, they show you the template and you can, oh yeah, it's that song there and that song there. The one example mm -hmm. in my head is, it is music of the night in Phantom of the Opera. Mm -hmm. That's the song that goes like this in that show. And, you know, there are many, many other ones. That's another fun example of a type scene where it's getting musical. With this song always conveys something. It has certain musical right. elements that are common. It's always a duet, et cetera. It appears at a certain point in the storyline in order to advance the plot in a certain kind of way. Exactly. That That's a kind of a modern type scene. So there's also the one you mentioned, the call to prophecy. Mm -hmm. is another classic example. Yeah, right. And and this, I think, follows less of a direct kind of type scene in the same way that the well does. The well is like a very tight example of that, where you're like, there are discrete elements that are common in each one of these. The call to prophecy, I mean, you have sort of the more, the, the classic ones that stand out to me were um, Moses being called from the burning bush and drawing close to it and then isaiah chapter six which is where he you know unexpectedly you might think the call would be the first thing that would appear in the book of isaiah in chapter one it doesn't you get more of this encounter we were having a little bit of a conversation about this where you were saying oh well maybe chapter six isn't the call narrative at all but it does have this this element or in some at least to the way that i've commonly understood this that god is asking who will i send and isaiah says i am here send me and then we have this the way that his prophecy gets established which is through this encounter with god this back and forth and then the angels that are appearing so he has this visual of of divine revelation and angels then you know, flying and kind of searing his his mouth in order to purify it. The burning bush with Moses is different in a number of ways, but right, you still have the prophet being called, has an appearance of the divine, previously did not have a relationship with God. God calls to him out of the burning bush. It's this suspension of like the normal laws of nature, unlike Isaiah, maybe Isaiah in this way is sort of the atypical one of like being a willing prophet. Very often they kind of question their ability to do it. And Isaiah maybe does as well. But Moses for sure is very hesitant at first to be the person that God will send. But this, this clear, you know, designation of the prophet as being God's messenger, being sent with a particular goal and being supported by God in that mission. I was just thinking of a biblical scene that was recently used in 
a sci-fi or fantasy show. Maybe it was in Midnight Mass. Hmm. They're studying about kids in the local town make fun of Alicia, the prophet, because he is bald. And he basically then has God send bears to kill the children. Was yeah, that Midnight Mass? That's now that you're saying it, I'm remembering that. Yeah. And then, then there's a bear attack. So not quite a type scene, but definitely there's this scene in the Bible that then plays out, but very explicitly so. Like there's no hint mm. in the life of the town itself. I thought that was a very clever play on the type scene as they kind of bring it in. So some of the other ones that are famous or well-known, there's one type scene is the the humiliation of the beloved son and then his exaltation where he is going through some kind of, not torture, going through very difficult, stressful, embarrassing times. And then he is then lifted up in some way or mm -hmm. re-embraced in some way. There's the binding of Isaac by Abraham. There's Jacob, where he has to wear Esau's clothes and has to wear freshly killed goat skins to fool his father. That's humiliating. And then Joseph in the pit, where he almost dies at the hands of his brothers, and then becomes a slave, and then rises to become mm -hmm. the vizier over Egypt. Yeah, I, I'm just curious, because I think you've brought it up before, are these referenced in John D. Levinson's Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son? That's Is that exactly the book I'm talking yeah. about. Right. Because, I mean, then there's obviously, like, the other ways you that... You read the book? In, in Christ, I have not read the book. I have a copy of it in my office that was donated or left there by some predecessor of mine. So it's, like, on the list. And just to want to acknowledge with a number of these, because they are type scenes in the Hebrew Bible, those same ideas and tropes then get picked up in the in the New Testament and in, in Christian sources as well obviously but yeah so i'm just for any of the listeners out there if you're noticing hmm right this thing that andrew said sounds rather jesus-y that's because yes and that that story those stories the story the narratives of jesus's life in the new testament are directly making that connection to these other stories that would have been familiar to people and i believe the hadith that ishmael is the one who is bound yes not overtly in the Quran, but there's a hadith about the Quran that makes Yishmael that son who mm -hmm. is bound and then saved. Mm -hmm. so yes, that certainly is an, an important type scene in America, in, in Western civilization, for sure. Mm -hmm, for sure. And one of the type scenes that I have had a lot of interest in, I, and I would say actually these two kind of go together, birth announcements and, and birth narratives. Yeah. So, right, this sort of like miraculous birth that's unexpected that gets announced. So the first example that we have of that is Sarah and Abraham, where, you know, Abraham has been promised children. They've come up with this solution where Hagar, they're servant their slave becomes a surrogate parent essentially for for sarah when she has not had children but they receive this divine messenger who informs them that a year from now you will have a child and this is the scene where sarah is listening at the doorway of the tent she's not meant to be present by someone, at least not meant to be present for the conversation, but she hears it and then is 
brought into the conversation when God says why did to Abraham why did Sarah laugh after the expected way that a family might have brought children into the world doesn't work out there is this divine visitor announcement saying you will in fact have a baby and then it comes it comes to pass and of course there is a there is an annunciation scene in christian scriptures too yes because they also have that type scene as well Right. So, right. In that case, Jesus being the sort of like kind of miraculous birth, although it's conceived but um, <laughs> in a different way, which is that, you know, there doesn't seem to be the this, this struggle with conception. It's just rather that this child comes about through miraculous means. And that seems to be the implication here, too. Now, on their own, Sarah and Abraham are not having are not succeeding in, in having a, a child. So is Sarah impregnated by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit? Maybe. Jacob and Esau. Is that a thing? Is that a thing? Yeah, people, like, we'll get to another one here in a minute. But oh, One more with Sarah thing. So Sarah not being in the room gives her the opportunity to laugh privately, which yeah. is maybe one of the, because usually the husband and wife are both present for the I don't the know husband. that there is a usually Right. It actually seems to be that it that there's one or the other often. So I want to look at this one more closely, but with it's less of an, an announcement with Jacob and Esau. This is more of the birth narrative. But again, right at first, they're not conceiving. Well, they both pray together. But there's like this particular weirdness about it because it seems like actually that from a close reading of the text that Rebecca may not actually want it herself i mean for all we know sarah doesn't really either and then it's only once you get into the actual pregnancy that happens that then rebecca as an individual starts showing her character which is she goes to inquire about what's going on because of the difficulty of the pregnancy as she's experiencing it right she is proactive again yeah she well yeah she's very proactive you see her strength in this generation isaac is fading into the background um but she she goes to inquire about what's happening and they you know receives this this prophecy so that's another piece that's often present in these birth announcements too is that they, they are or birth narratives they are not they often come about through unusual or supernatural means and then there's some kind of prophetic element as to like what's going to happen with this child. It's a special child. There's something unique about them. So the last one in this set that I want to talk about, which is the story of the birth of Samson in the book of Judges. This is Eshet Manoach, the wife of Manoach. And the story here, like this is where going back to the impregnated by the Holy Spirit thing, maybe, or an angel. Really? Um, okay. Well, it's one way you could read it. Okay. Because she goes off, she's she's walking around, this woman who is named, you know, she's told we're we're only informed that she is the wife of so and so of of Manoah. She encounters this angel or this being who says to her you are going to have a baby and hear all these special things that you have to do because he's going to be a Nazarite. 
or essentially she has to kind of be a Nazarite during, in some ways during the pregnancy. It's like avoiding wine, all of this stuff. And then she, she goes to get her husband afterwards and then and then they have to come back and see the guy and they have to rehash the whole thing but it does it raise this interesting question where you're like hmm well you know she didn't have a baby with that guy and now you've had this encounter with an angel when he wasn't present and you know where did that baby suddenly come from See, that's like a very that's an intriguing read on Eshet Manoach and Manoach. The way I usually read it is the angel comes to Manoach's wife. She says, cool. She tells her husband all the details. He then says, but what are the details? She says, fine. Then the angel appears again to her. She says, hang on. I'll be right back. Brings her not too bright husband. Mm -hmm. He says, what are the details? He says, like I told you before. And then Manoach says, do you want to stay for lunch? And she goes, no. And then he goes up in a column of fire. <laughs> Manoach says, we're all going to die. And his wife says, we can't die, you fool. I have to have a child in a year. I assume it was because they're going to have a kid, but that does not exclude your reading, which is a very intriguing reading. Right. And this is not like some, I, I'm not the the originator or first person who's like come up with this idea. This is a thing that gets picked up on in looking at the New Testament narrative or like how convenient it might be to say, right, oh yes, this child came about through divine intervention yeah so right and especially like, i think the the manoah manoah story is particularly suggestive because of the walking around in the field by yourself thing sure the isolation I it's like we know it's like women alone fields oh yeah things tend to go things tend to happen that's a good point. That's a really good point. I'm thinking, in, and the fact in, that she is alone, right, is very because in Parshat Mishpatim, they're talking about if a woman is raped and she's in a field or in the city, and so that definitely is, you know, these things happen in fields sometimes. Right. That's and there's like Dina going out. To, I mean, she's not in a field, but going out to talk with the daughters right. of the land, and then yeah. bad things happen. Yeah, she's outside the safety of the household. So that's another motif: the woman who is out on her own. It's another type as well that kind of plays into, they bring in that motif into this type scene. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. I also wonder if the Samson birth announcement, because it is so convoluted and multi-stage, he's announced several times, which mm -hmm. to my ears is comical. Because I do find like Manoa stupidity humorous and Samson... I read it as allegory and satire in some ways because mm -hmm. there are some humorous elements to it. I wonder if like the weird enunciation scene kind of sets you up for this is going to be a slightly humorous, satirical chapter in Judges because it is sort of like there's some like dark humor going on there because Samson, yeah. he keeps trusting the wrong women. He, <clears throat> he tries to tell a riddle and it, he's exaggeratedly yeah. strong and kills lots of people and it's just a very strange thing and it does the enunciation set up its weirdness as another within judges yeah i think it does and i think it, it's like that's really interesting because i hadn't you know thought about it in quite those terms but what i was thinking also as you were talking is getting this from teachers at 
of mine from JTS that the book of Judges over and over again is episodes about what goes wrong without a monarchy Mm -hmm. and also particularly showing the ways that like gender issues like subversion of the the rightful order or hierarchy in the author editor's view leads to disorder in the society and one of the ways that the upending of of a proper hierarchy order is indicated in a lot of narratives has to do with like women having power or men being weak relatively speaking and women needing to assert like that kind of power and control so like the esha Manoah story is like kind of feeds into that as well because she's mm-hmm. the one who understands what's going on she has to bring the husband who doesn't seem to catch on very quickly into the story he's sort of peripheral yeah she has to live in that quasi nazarite fashion he doesn't right so she's responsible for even carrying the baby to term with certain restrictions which require discipline and focus right but even from the outset and we're meant to i think see the contrast between this and the other the primary example of this type scene which is the birth announcement to abraham and sarah yeah where at least ostensibly it's to Abraham. It turns out it is to Abraham and Sarah. I like to read that story somewhat subversively. Also, my take on that is that God actually intended the announcement to be made to both Abraham and Sarah, but that, you know, Abraham being in his typical like patriarchal framework just sort of said, okay, you stay inside. And it is actually God that then invites Sarah back into the conversation by calling Abraham's attention to the fact that She's present, listening, and laughed, and this really affects her. I think it's a great read. Yeah. I think that segues into actually the the, the next birth announcement scene, by the way, which actually Mm -hmm. leads to order and monarchy, which is Hannah. Mm -hmm. Because Hannah, she is also barren. She's at the Mishkan in Shiloh at their annual visit there. Mm -hmm. And her husband is also largely ineffectual, you know, loving, but adult aren't i better to you than 10 sons no not in this society that would be nice and her (laughs) rival wife penina mocks her terribly and so she prays and eli the high priest who should be a powerful insightful wise figure reads her totally wrong thinks she's a drunkard she says she corrects him saying nope i am pouring out my heart aka in other words not wine and you know, and then he apologizes and hopes that her, you know, prayer is fulfilled. Do you know the Midrash where Hannah says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to isolate myself with a man. We're not going to have sex. I'll make my husband suspect I'm an adulteress. He'll have to take me to the Mishkan to undergo the trial of the Sota. I will then, of course, pass the trial. And then the Torah there says, and then she becomes pregnant. Gotcha. And she forces God's hand to make her have a child. So she asserts herself by like, mm-hmm. outgaming God in the Midrash yeah. to get a child who will become Samuel, who will begin the monarchy, who will bring the order that is absent and women are that canary in the mine shaft and that will be over. Right. So Samuel over. also having some of the, the same kinds of restrictions or being a, the special child. Yeah. And he is also Nazarite-ish. He's a Nazarite-ish. So the special it's child being a Nazarite. Yeah. 
yeah so like that and the Eshet Manoach narrative have a lot of commonalities in that yeah. way it's like and then that I think highlights even more what you were saying about Samson being this sort of like you know farcical like comical character because this is when it didn't quite go right mm. and then Samuel himself seems to go to to go well he's a prophet he um seems to do what he's intended by god to do it's just that the other human actors maybe don't necessarily get with the program yeah and that's a good and that's a good segue to one of like the motifs in the hebrew bible which is you know the line of david comes through samuel's anointing of god's choosing of david who is the unsuspected beginning of the line of kings and the arthurian legends play off of that for sure it's a very davidic in vibe mm-hmm. and you know and then the line of kings will become broken in the end of the hebrew bible with the babylonian exile although not totally broken but like basically out of power and the restoration of the of the lost line of the king is certainly a motif that occurs in a lot of places notably lord of the rings in particular which feels very davidic and messianic in that sense of aragorn being the one who restores the line of kings again that that feels very davidic to me and definitely picks up on that late biblical motif Okay. How many more of these do we want to get in? There's David and Goliath stories where the the weak who takes down the strong, there's creation narratives. There's expulsion from Eden, loss of innocence narratives, Exodus narratives, return from exile narratives, Mm -hmm. wilderness narratives, the leader not going into the promised land. And all of these are, you know, motifs that are picked up in western literature in all kinds of ways yes we will not go into all of them that would be ridiculous no we could talk about that for a very long time so you already touched a little bit on on a couple of examples from modern sci-fi and fantasy where we see this you're just mentioning now about lord of the rings and the restoring of the lost line of kings picking up on that kind of thread what about some other ones we had a few other ideas here so the the show that got me Thinking about this as a topic for this month was the show Outer Range on HBO. The type scene that they use is the owner of the competitor ranch has two sons. One is a hunter, a great outdoorsman, and he is the one that the father loves more or at least wants to inherit the farm. And the other son is more business-minded, and he knows that he should be the one to really inherit the farm. And basically, it's just Isaac and Jacob and Asav being played out, again, where the father loves the son who doesn't really need or want or appreciate what he's got to inherit. And then the other one tries to take matter into their own hands to become the one who will actually inherit the estate. So that was one very clear example. I think there were others that were pretty clear. I mean, Matrix, which we've also spoken about before, has lots of parallels to all kinds of things. The Exodus story, we were looking at Neo and his sort of encounter with the computers being a little bit like his burning bush moment, a la Moses. Although he, yeah. there's also, I think, a little bit of that, like, you know, the promised leader restoration maybe not quite a restoration in the same way as like the davidic line story but there being this like chosen one 
maybe that fits best with that with the call to prophecy yeah, i'm gonna yes and that i think it's both he is the reluctant oh i'm not the one he denies that he is the one to fulfill the line but the way that the matrix and this is a spoiler i apologize that the one recurs again and again and again he's yeah. like a recurring individual in the matrix who will always lead them to freedom and then it just falls right back into the pattern of enslavement which reminds me of the book of enoch where there is this old soul who comes down to earth every few centuries to try to save humanity and then fails and then goes back and then comes back down reminds me of sort of that pre-christian jewish book of enoch thing where mm -hmm. there is this quasi-divine messianic figure who recurs and neo fits that archetype very nicely and that gets woven into like davidic restoration of kings as well in later tradition which is very early christianity thought as well yeah so there's a lot of tie-ins to a lot of those motifs there the wachowskis knew what they were doing yeah in terms of um, like all of that yeah. religious imagery they they knew exactly what they were doing yeah, yeah i mean the another one that we were talking about was game of thrones and the birth or rebirth kind of narrative um we don't have have so much of a enunciation but we were looking at the scene of the dragons right and how the dragons get via fire in the in this particular kind of way along with it daenerys targaryen gets sort of like reborn as this leader she survives this like scorching fire and and, and emerges as in some ways right it's like the that the line that had been broken mm -hmm. she's she is the heir to the in their view rightful monarchy having you know been the child of a deposed monarch right. and she subverts the maleness of that narrative which is yes. so often is which is a, a nice flip and change yeah and then it fails yeah ultimately it fails as as messianic movements often do <laughs> like nope not that right, right? Else. She's like we're just gonna come in with our dragons and everything will be fine oh god that was it was very hard watching her just go off the rails and just burn mm -hmm. everything to the ground. Like, oh, that's not what it, that's not what you're, mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. It could have been so much different. Could have been so much different, yeah. Yeah. And then Planet of the Apes, which was a surprisingly good reboot of that old 1960s movies and TV show with um, Andy Serkis playing Caesar, who's this beginning of these evolved intelligent apes. It's it's so like clear like that he takes them to the promised land and then he dies <laughs> very mm -hmm. mosaic where he literally just like he sees them in the distance but he cannot go there and he just lays down and dies by a tree it was very clearly the leader does not go into the promised land with them another one of like the leader couple couple examples of the leader not going to the promised land that we were talking about one was very similar to the Moses type trope, Lee Adama in Battlestar Galactica. He is, you know, the retiring, retired general who kind of becomes the leader of this fleet and is leading them through their wanderings through space, hopefully to, as they eventually will return to the mythical Earth, but he does not make it there. And we were also talking about foundation. I mean, his name literally means Earth. 
His name literally means Earth. And Adam. Uh, like, Adam can't go back into the Garden of Eden. Adam can't like, go it's back like, into the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Motif is very clear in a beautiful well, way. Well, that, right. But it's like, it's it's a crossover between, like, the Adam motif and, like, the Moses not being able, you know, the leader not being able to go into the promised land. Right. So is that, so is the Moses not going into the promised land like a redo of Adam and Eve can't go back into the Garden uh, of Eden. Is it like, like a, a, a super motif that's the mm -hmm. motif within the Hebrew Bible itself? Could be. The Mandalorian. Um, and... oh. Speaking of the the promised land. So there was an episode in the most recent season of The Mandalorian called The Spies. And everybody was thinking, oh, someone's going to betray someone. And the episode came and went and everyone said... Nobody betrayed anybody who were the spies. And then Jews said, no, 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 no. These are not spies. These are like the scouts. 12 scouts who go back to spy the land. Can they retake it? And because that 12 Mandalorians scout out Mandalore. I'm like, oh, this is playing off of that type mm -hmm. scene of the 12 scouting out the land. And then, then a lot of Jewish motifs were present in mandalorian season three it was a very jewish season which we've talked about before but that plays out like that type scene very nicely the 12 scouting out mm -hmm. the land we were also talking about foundation and harry selden as having this like weird afterlife where it's like not his physical form but is a preservation of his memory and knowledge that comes back and reemerges at different points. And we're like, okay, so in maybe in some ways he's like Moses and in that he isn't physically present as the leader, but in some ways we were saying, well, maybe Harry Seldon's knowledge that he preserves and gets kind of passed on and reemerges at key times in the timeline is like the book of Deuteronomy itself which is Moses's sort of own telling and transmission of knowledge to guide the people as they're going forward. Which could be also picking up on the story of King Hezekiah when they find this scroll in the temple that leads to a mm -hmm. reformation, which right. helps the kingdom of Israel avoid disaster. Oh, no, no. Here's what we have to do to stay in the land lest we end up in exile. It doesn't mm -hmm. work in the end, but it's like the foundation trying to mm -hmm. circumvent certain disaster by helping humanity recover quickly after the inevitable crisis. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that's actually in the original Asimov books, but it feels deeply Jewish to me. That aspect of Harry Seldon, which we had not noticed till we talked about it. I don't yeah. specifically. It's a really deeply Deuteronomic approach, which I think is absolutely delightful okay and then oh and the other leader who can't go into the promised land which was more of like a slow rollout which is in the third star wars trilogy in each movie one of the original principal characters dies han in the first one luke the second one and then leia in the third one which all kind of then leads to like whatever's post star wars like they cannot go into this post Palpatine future, but Ray will. So Ray is like Joshua, who kind of like takes the Jedi until the next phase. But you know, the old guard has to die before the new guard can really inherit and take over. That's more of a stretched out version of the motif, but it's 
I see it. Any uh, other ones on your mind? And there's so many. There are so many. There are so many. So what might we want to say to sum up this discussion? I think it, it gives me an appreciation for how foundational the Bible is in Western literature and television and cinema. These archetypal scenes provide a vocabulary that we that we use, whether you pick up on it or not, conscious or subconscious, it provides a vocabulary that makes storytelling easier because it gets some of the basic narrative out of the way. You need less exposition if you're using these familiar type scenes, a shorthand for a narrative. Like, oh yes, we know what's going on here. No need for further elaboration. I can then focus on the interesting differences. I don't need to hear all the background. So that's one piece of it that I think is in. And then the Hebrew Bible forms so much of that. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I also, it, it also makes me wonder, want to think about more, as we've talked about, I think at other points, like, are there just archetypal stories in all of human civilization? <laughs> and the Hebrew Bible has a set of them that have become super familiar because of this the importance and centrality of that work of literature into what is developed into western culture any culture influenced by christianity in particular because that's the the way that biblical traditions have like been transmitted to a broader audience but i but i think like the there are some that we've identified here that are very clearly like the the biblical forms of those stories like maybe there is sort of this base base level few handful of stories that we all tell but the kinds that we're talking about here some of them you know the the birth annunciation stories the humiliation of the beloved son or the related to that i think the we didn't quite talk about like the trope of the younger child subverting the older one that appears over and over again in a number of different ways. To that point. Wa- expulsion, wandering. To your point about the younger subverting the older, I just watched the Percy Jackson and the Olympians season mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. And number one, it, it feels so Harry Potter-esque. It's good. I just feel the Harry Potterness of it all. Mm-hmm. It's like the young boy who is chosen with his female and male friends and they're on a quest and they go to this camp during summer. I'm like, okay, got it. But the big bad is Kronos. And Kronos is, of course, the, this old god that the younger generation keeps under control. So they they subvert their father by keeping mm-hmm. him shattered in a pit. and And he threatens to return and you know undo the order of creation i think to your to your very on point point that the bible is just like a crystallization of some of these universal motifs that humanity talks about and that we they contain their own take on them like our genesis one creation narrative Mm -hmm. is a is a subversion of the babylonian and ancient near east creation stories where there used to be a big cosmic battle like zeus fighting Kronos. Mm-hmm. or Marduk fighting Tiamat. Right, but and that there's thought... usually a male and fa- female deity involved and that like somehow the female deity is like physical form or body is involved in like making up the material right, of right. which the Tiamat, world right. is Tiamat created. Tiamat becomes the ocean. Right. 
Yeah, our subversion of that mythological motif is to demythologize it and make it boring, which is which is also a new narrative subverting an older narrative, which mm-hmm. is the new subverting the old in that the new does not subvert the old. Say the last part again. Our narrative is subversive because yeah. there's no narrative of subversion of God keeping the forces of chaos at bay. We don't have that narrative in Genesis 1. We took it out. So we subvert the narrative of the younger gods keeping chaos at bay by removing the narrative of God keeping the forces of chaos at bay. It's just uncontested mastery. Yeah. And and it's like, it's something that's so interesting to me as we're talking about this. And we've spoken about the creation story before, but what the way that you just said it there of like, it's subverting the narrative by removing the subversion. And then I'm like, and then this version of the story where the reference to needing to keep the forces of chaos at bay, kind of, although it's referenced vaguely, like tohu vavohu, mm-hmm. what is this? chaos and void? What is it? It's not persona, but mm-hmm. we're seeing God as the one who's making, who's creating order, but it is making it standing out to me as okay so now we've we've all become more familiar with this version of the story so for many people in the world um, who are familiar with the biblical narrative this is the creation story whereas it would have in ancient times been read as a subversion of the creation story and so the ways that we're that i find you know I've had that narrative subverted have been, for example, in learning in Bible class at JTS, like actually there was this other version of the narrative that this is a subversion of. And then when I then bring that into communities that I'm teaching about this narrative, it like, you know, blows everybody's minds because we're like, this is the narrative. The nar- we, we, un- we thought we understood what the narrative is, but then it turns out it's actually a response to or an erasure of or a subversion of this other narrative. Mm-hmm. And so then around and around we go. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I do. I love that larger narrative of how the narratives have changed. We were trained the same. I teach that all the time as well. And I, I do enjoy the sort of the brain melt. They go, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Psalm 104 and other Psalms where it's clearly there's like a, you know, God can barely keep the forces of chaos at bay. Mm-hmm. Psalm 93, which we do on Friday nights and part of the Shabbat morning liturgy is about God basically keeping things under control constantly. And it's a constant fight, mm-hmm. which is the mythological being hinted at. Mm-hmm. Little bits keep popping out. They keep popping out and, you know, seeing the flood story as the undoing of creation and those forces of chaos welling up from the deeps, for example. It's very interesting. Is Evan Almighty playing with type scenes or is it just too on the nose to be a type scene redo? The arc of the flood narrative. That's, yeah, I don't know. I think it's like when it's that direct... Yeah. Is Evan Almighty fantasy? Probably. Yeah, because anything that's like in a biblical genre or like playing with that, it's like I think our tendency in Western culture has been to preserve or put put off into into a different category. Anything that has to do with like playing with religions that are like tropes of of religious texts that are like currently practiced by anyone. But if we talk about, you know, like ancient Greek myth and play with that, that's fantasy. So So. let's 
take a look at what we've got from the Geniza. The Geniza. Oh, yes. I was thinking back to books I loved in middle school by the, I think, still, I think he's still good, Lloyd Alexander. I think it's still good. He wrote the Pridane Chronicles, which began with the Book of Three, and then there was the Black Cauldron. Disney took these and ruined them and made them into the Black Cauldron, which was bad because it ruined the books. And the books were, of course, my first love. I think they were the first fantasy series that I read. And what's funny about them, I think they're pre-Star Wars. I'm pretty sure that they're pre-Star Wars. If they're not pre-Star Wars, then they're derivative. And if they are pre-Star Wars, did you read these? The Book of Three yes, series? You did? I did? Yeah. Cool. We uh, brought did... them up. I know I need to go back and read these because I really want to see if it holds up. I think we have, I may have mentioned them at one point. I'm sure it would have. Our previous episodes, but I don't think we really discussed it. Yeah. So I read this very, they're clearly Gaelic in like the material he's drawing from. Right. And he has two L's in his name. He's clearly of Gaelic origins. And the names are all very Gaelic. Mm-hmm. And wonderful series high fantasy meant for a young adult audience there's five of them which definitely has a biblical vibe in terms of being a five book series mm-hmm. and it's about a young boy who is sent off on an adventure by a wise old man who has companions including a fuzzy one named gurgi who keeps eating crunchies and munchies as i recall and they're fighting a bad guy who has a skull mask who has, and there's a bigger bad who does force lightning. It's like it's very Star Wars-y. Or it's these old motifs. It's the hero's adventure. Like just another version. Instead of in space, it's in like a fictionalized fantasy Gaelic setting. And they were fantastic. And just, you know, I mentioned them because I loved them. I adored all five of them. They were so good. And there's a Princess Leia-type character. And there's a Han Solo rogue-type character. And, of course, they get married. And, of course, she's a very strong female character because it's a lot of the same tropes. The thing, these are pre-Star Wars. These were written, yeah, 64. So Lucas knew this stuff. But it also plays off of the, the Joseph Campbell mm-hmm. big human archetypes. Right. So I don't know. I don't care. They were great. <laughs> they were wonderful. Did you enjoy them? I did. I just like, I I feel like I barely remember, you know, it was so long ago. And so it's definitely something that I would love to go back and revisit. So I had something come up from the Geniza, which I don't know, to me doesn't feel like it's from the Geniza because it's just been like an active part of my life. But I was thinking about it recently because I just took my kids to see the movie Wonka, which I had not yet done when we recorded the first part of our episode so i'd love to talk about that next time so i want to remember that um but both charlie and the chocolate factory as the original book by roald dahl um, but particularly i have a particular attachment to willy wonka and the chocolate factory the 1907 film starring gene wilder as willy wonka and just like the the weirdness and amazingness of that movie and the music is good and i want to talk about this more next time with the way that the new movie builds on and plays with some of the the stuff that was 
from that particular iteration mm. and is giving Wonka's backstory, like how he became the great Willy Wonka chocolate maker. But it, yeah, I every time I watch it, I'm like, it still, still stands the test of time. Oh, yeah. The Oompa Loompas are fantastic. I mean, it's based on Roald Dahl's original story, but just like the, the music and the character of Willy Wonka being this sort of, you know, whimsical, oddball, keeps you on your toes kind of character. It's yeah. Very... He's a trickster. He's a trickster. He's a trickster. And Gene Wilder, I mean, the Johnny Depp, Tim Burton version for me is, you know, and it had Saruman as Wonka's father, who was the evil dentist who didn't let him have candy, hmm. whatever, you know, I don't need that. This is, you know, <laughs> Timothy Chalamet, you know, give me the, you know, young Atreides version of Willy Wonka yeah. anytime. And Hugh Grant as an Oompa Loompa. Yes. I thought that's going to be so dumb. that I saw the trailer, I thought that looks hysterically amazing. It's actually great. It looks oh, great. The that trailer will be for next sold time. me on that right away. I didn't see it yet. The trailer sold me on Hugh Grant as Oompa Loompa. I'm like, I'm confident it'll be fantastic. Yeah, it's a really, it, it was well done. And um, I think satisfied me. I, we'll talk about this next time. It yes. satisfied me as a fan of the 1971 film. The movie is so good. I grew up with it. I mean, I was born in 72. I never didn't know it. And we saw a YouTube video recently about the song that Willy Wonka sings in the chocolate room, World of Pure Imagination. Yes. He did a deep analysis of the, the, the composition of the song. And the guy can't stop gushing about how strikingly brilliant and beautiful the music is compositionally like what an unusual yeah. bizarre song it's a very strange song mm -hmm. and it's it's so iconic yeah so they include it in the new movie with like a like people who are like really you know purists like you may be like oh they changed a couple things but it is clearly it's like it is prime it is the original song with a few changes that made sense and additions that made sense in the like plot or context of when where it appears and there was also other music in the new movie that i felt was quite good that Ooh. i found myself singing like I've i still remember my son loved the well oh my gosh we're gonna have to talk about this basically long story short he's now my eight-year-old has now become a fan of timothy chalamet noticed the similarities between his own and timothy chalamet's hair and has now decided that we decided that he's going to be Willy Wonka for Purim and has already been diligently working on learning all the lyrics to the songs. That's so great. That's yeah. so great. So excited. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, it's like definitely they succeeded in the new version, I think, in, in making me happy as a fan of the 1971 and then also bringing, you know, and my my kids have also seen that that version. But then adding to and expanding on the things that made that original one great. That's so great. Yeah. That's so great. So that concludes our 11th episode of Sacred Realms. Just my type. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation about sci-fi and fantasy through a Jewish lens and come back to hear more next month. Our, when our next episode will... <laughs> 
Come out. If you like this episode, please leave us a positive rating or review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you prefer to find your podcasts. And thank you for all of our reviews and emails thus far. This episode was written and edited by me, Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock. And me, Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone. We recorded using Zoom and edited using Descript. And you can reach us with any questions, comments, or suggestions at sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com. May the Mafarshim be with you.